On display in Reading Museum is a 15cm tall bronze eagle, found during the excavation of the Forum Basilica of the Roman town of Silchester in 1866. The object was initially identified as a legionary standard, a sacred object that would be carried before Roman soldiers as they marched into battle. In 1957, however, a different interpretation was put forward by Charles Boone, who suggested that the eagle had come from a bronze statue of the Roman god Jupiter, with whom the bird is synonymous. While Boone's interpretation is now generally accepted, the image of this object as a legionary standard had already become ingrained in the minds of many, with the publication of the novel The Eagle of the Ninth a couple of years prior in 1954. This novel told the story of how the Ninth Legion disappeared beyond Hadrian's Wall, and the subsequent mission of Marcus Aquila, the son of the Lost Legion's commander, to retrieve the Legion's eagle with the aid of his former slave Esker. The Eagle of the Ninth was written by a young novelist named Rosemary Sutcliffe, who had previously published several other works set in different periods of British history, including during the Elizabethan Age and the Civil War, whether the Eagle marked her first published foray into the world of Roman Britain. It became her most famous work, spawning radio, TV and film adaptions, although it is only the first chapter in a much larger story that followed the descendants of Marcus, who can be identified by their ownership of a dolphin ring, down to the Norman period. The Silver Branch, released in 1957, would explain how the Bronze Eagle came to be buried at Silchester, while the Lantern Bearers, published in 1959, depicted the end of Roman power in Britain, the coming of the Saxons, and the reign of Ambrosius Aurelianus, who was subsequently succeeded in 1963's Sword at Sunset by Artos, who we know as Arthur. Frontier Wolf, published many years later in 1980, added a mid-4th century relative to Marcus's family tree, who was stationed on Hadrian's Wall. However, for Sutcliffe, Roman Britain provided too broad a canvas to limit herself to recounting the escapades of the Aquili family alone, and she published a number of other novels set in the same period. There was Outcast, which tells the story of a Roman boy adopted by a British tribe who is then expelled and taken to Rome, only to find his way back to Britain again. Mark of the Horse Lord, which recounts how a former gladiator is drawn into dynastic conflicts of a tribe beyond the northern frontier. And Song for a Dark Queen, an account of the Budokan Revolt from the perspective of a Nicene harpist and a young aide-de-camp named Agricola. There was also the Capricorn Bracelet, which consisted of a collection of short stories about various generations of a family living near the northern frontier from the 1st to 4th centuries, while various edited collections also contained short stories set in Roman Britain by Rosemary Sutcliffe. Now, it's a long bibliography, and there are few who can claim to have had as much impact on how the general public imagined life in Roman Britain. She was also the winner of multiple literary awards, including a Carnegie Medal for the Lantern Bearers, was made a CBE. To date, her works have sold over 15 million copies and been translated into over 13 languages. And as we'll hear later, there are quite a few historians and archaeologists who are inspired to pick up their trowels and their pens after reading her works. But it was not only her skill and productivity as a writer that made her such an interesting character. There's also her own unique life story, which she recounted in her memoirs, Blue Remembered Hills, up to the publication of The Eagle of the Ninth. She did not have an easy upbringing. Growing up against the backdrop of World War II, she was diagnosed with Stills disease, a form of juvenile arthritis, which limited her mobility for the rest of her life. Her father's naval service meant he was often absent, leaving her alone with a mother that struggled with mental health issues, and the frequent moves her family made, including to rural Devon, often left her isolated from people of her own age. Before becoming an author, she also embarked, under pressure from her family, on a career as a miniature painter, and despite her own ambivalence towards the work, her paintings were well received and were displayed at the Royal Academy. As December 14th, 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of Sutcliffe's birth, 
What better time to look back on the life and works of somebody who conjured an image of Roman Britain like no other? I'm David Walsh, and this is Rosemary Sutcliffe and Reimagining Roman Britain. Rosemary Sutcliffe was born in 1920 in Surrey. As her father, George, was an officer in the Royal Navy, many of her early years were spent moving around various naval bases in the UK, along with a spell in Malta. George was often at sea, sometimes 18 months at a time, and it was not until he retired from the Navy, when Rosemary was around 10 years old, that she felt she really got to know him. Nevertheless, she had a great love and admiration for her father. She dedicated her novel Outcast to him, and her portrayal of the Emperor Carousius in The Silver Branch was clearly designed as a homage to both her father and the Royal Navy. Carousius, originally a sailor who was charged with defending the British Channel from pirates, is a rough-around-the-edges visionary who is able to recognise the great potential of a powerful navy, something he criticises Rome for never having understood, and we the readers know he is to be proven right, as Britain's Royal Navy will one day provide the basis for its own imperial rule. The characterisation of Carousius, who is described as a short, stockly-built man, is distinctly unregal, but perhaps his most telling attribute is his bushy eyebrows, a feature he shared with Sutcliffe's father. According to Sutcliffe, bushy eyebrows were a hallmark of a professional sailor. It was, she observed, God's way of keeping salt water from getting in their eyes. As if the family's frequent moves necessitated by her father's career weren't enough to disrupt the young Rosemary's education and ability to make friends, her situation was compounded further when at a young age she developed Stills disease, an arthritic condition that required frequent stays in hospital and gruelling electroshock treatments. This became worse in her teenage years when the family moved to the North Devon countryside, as she was now too old for the children's ward, and so spent much of her time recuperating from treatment in nursing homes. As the years went by, I began to be more and more conscious of being lonely. It has not really mattered until I was 14, the isolation in which we lived. There was school and there was hospital. I was never allowed to bring anyone home from school, I'm still not sure why, but I think my mother feared other links as a menace, and so I never made any real friends there, aware, I think, of the uselessness of trying to do so. And hospital was a world of its own. When one left, tentative friendships were left behind. But until I was 14, school and hospital did provide points of contact with my own generation. Art school was another matter. It was Sheerness Dockyard all over again. For between 14 and 18 to 20 lies a generation gap almost as great as between 14 and 5. And at the same time I left school, I became too old for a children's hospital. From then on, when I fell due for another operation, I retired into a nursing home in Exeter, and a nursing home can be one of the loneliest places in the world. Admittedly, this one had a large walled garden with a mulberry tree, and convalescent patients could be moved out into little shelters like rabbit hutches in it. But as any outpatients who dropped in on me were usually dotty old ladies under the impression that I was their younger sister who had been dead for 50 years or bent on telling me a long story about the Archdeacon coming to call on a Thursday or was it Tuesday, not long after they got married I gained little real companionship from their visits. I was beginning to need companionship sorely. I was 15, 16, 17 and didn't know a soul of my own age. Living so far in the country was not really ideal for a young thing with mobility problems. My father and mother had each other, and though we were a very close-knit family, in any triangular group of father, mother and child, the child is going to be the odd man out, 
and therefore needs other contacts. I do not think my father saw this, and I am very sure my mother did not. As she later reflected, her parents, as grateful as she was to them for the upbringing they provided, did not realise that the young Rosemary found the lack of companionship among people of her own age such a struggle. Sutcliffe also felt that her mother Nessie became increasingly controlling as she grew older, expecting that Rosemary would remain her constant companion at the expense of other relationships in gratitude for the sacrifices that Nessie had made for her. Moreover, Nessie would descend for weeks into dark moods for no apparent reason. She would get up in the morning as Polly Linton, the madcap of the fourth. Halfway through breakfast, something would happen. Maybe my father or I would say or do something, or not say or do something. In either case, we seldom discovered what. Or maybe some change of mood would take place of its own accord within her, and we would find that we were eating toast and marmalade in company with Lady Macbeth. And Lady Macbeth would be with us for the rest of the day, or three days, or a fortnight. And then, as suddenly as she had come... Lady Macbeth would depart, and in her place, joy of joys, would be the Rose of Tralee. My mother had no drop of Irish blood in her, but had spent long summer holidays with Irish relatives when she was a child, when she had been absolutely horrible for days, and if ever a woman knew how to be horrible, she did, putting the boot into all our sensitive spots with a sure instinct for where it would hurt most, and was suddenly nice again. Indeed, whenever she had the urge to be particularly charming, she would become Irish of the Irish. My father used to just wait patiently for the black mood to depart. I was less patient and went in for silent, inward rebellion. I used to say to myself, this time she's done it once too often. This time I won't come running the instant she smiles at me. Do come play at that game. But always, when the sun did come out again, I was so relieved and so overjoyed to be forgiven, along with my father, for our unknown crime that I would come running as before. It became accepted that my mother had depressions, but in those days, all that happened when you had depressions was that the doctor gave you a tonic or a weak bromide mixture and a pep talk. And even your nearest and dearest couldn't help feeling that if only you would pull yourself together. I believe she was really what we should now call manic depressive and probably needed some kind of treatment. And maybe the sorrows and anxieties that I had caused her had a lot to do with it. But I do also truly believe that a large part of her trouble stemmed from this problem of having an outsized artistic temperament and no safety valve. I, who had any tendencies to a temperament of any kind firmly extinguished when very young, and have the safety valve of creative writing, except when suffering from writer's block, should count my blessings and be thankful to my mother for something of her mind and imagination that I have inherited from her. Despite their troubled relationship, Sutcliffe had many fond memories of her mother, and it was Nessie that exposed a young Rosemary to a wide array of literature, reading her stories from the likes of Beatrix Potter, A. A. Milne, Charles Dickens, Robert Louis Stevenson, and Hans Andersen. Sutcliffe's mother had a particular love of historical novels, and a view of history that her daughter described as more the minstrels than the historians, and it was these novels that introduced Sutcliffe to the history and archaeology of the Roman Empire, albeit through a lens of literary flair. These included Macaulay's Lays of Ancient Rome, a series of poems reciting famous episodes of the Eternal City's early history that became a staple of classical education at private schools across Britain. There was also the German archaeologist Arthur Weigel's now rather obscure books, 
wanderings in Roman Britain and wanderings in Anglo-Saxon Britain, with the former including a photo of the Silchester Eagle in its opening pages. She also read Lord Lytton's Last Days of Pompeii, although dismissed it as the most depressing piece of long-winded Victoriana. The images of the ancient world conjured in Sutcliffe's mind were not limited to what she learned from books, however, as there were also the photos her father would show her of the places he had visited while serving in the navy, including the ruins of Pompeii and Mycenae. So taken was Sutcliffe with images of Greece that she immediately felt an irresistible pull towards the place, and when she finally visited the country later in life, it only served to reaffirm her belief that she had some sort of special connection to it. Although her Roman Britain novels are her most well-known works, Sutcliffe also published several novels set in the Greek world, including a retelling of the Iliad called Black Ships Before Troy, which was published shortly before her death. Although her Stills disease had limited her ability to travel in her youth, Sutcliffe also took a strong interest in the history of sites closer to home, particularly Exeter, where she would often visit for hospital treatment. Exeter's Roman predecessor would go on to provide the setting for the opening chapters of The Eagle of the Ninth, and is the subject of a vivid description provided as Marcus approaches it for the first time. As Roman archaeologist and illustrator Giacomo Savani recounts, this description has served as an inspiration for his own reimaginings of the Roman world. While I was doing some research on the impact that imagination and art might have on archaeological research, I came across this passage in uh, The Eagle of the Ninth that describes the Romano-British town of Isca Dumnoniorum, modern-day Exeter in Devon. The author described the impression of Isca on the protagonist, centurion Marcus Flavius Aquila. Dogs sat scratching in odd corners, lean pigs rooted among the garbage piles, and women with bracelets of gold and copper and very white arms sat in hut doorways, spinning or grinding corn. The blue smoke of many cooking fires curled up into the quiet air, and the savoury smell of many evening meals mingled with the blue reek of wood smoke and the sharper tang of a horse dropping, which Marcus had by now come to associate with all British towns. The past is filtered through the experience of a specific individual. Furthermore, the third person's perspective reminds us of two other filters embedded in the author's writing, her personal consciousness and the archaeological interpretation of specific sites, in this case, Iscadum at specific moments in time, in this case, around 1954, which is the year uh, Sutcliffe published The Eagle of the Ninth. This evocative reconstruction of a Roman town recalls the paintings of Alan Sorrell, who has been re- recently defined as the man who created Roman Britain. Sutcliffe's role in creating Roman Britain was certainly as important as that of Sorrell. Her books, just like Sorrell's painting, have shape and keep shaping the way archaeologists imagine the past. In the case of the passage I read, a fictional reconstruction, albeit based on archaeological and historical evidence, provides a powerful, synthetic impression of a Roman town. These considerations suggest the potential that narratives, both pictorial and textual, might have in an academic discourse. Reality is constantly filtered through the human element, and emotional perception cannot be excluded from our understanding of the past. If we think of a site or an archaeological object as a picture, the emotional and narrative elements will be a series of photographic filters that highlight details otherwise lost and confused. 
they address the eyes of the archaeologist, enriching with nuances their comprehension of the past. Later in The Eagle, the town is destroyed by a local tribe, but at the close of the novel, Marcus is informed that the town is now being rebuilt, a possible allusion to the rebuilding of Exeter in Sutcliffe's own time following the bombing campaigns of the war. Although Sutcliffe spent much of the war in rural Devon, and her father returned from the conflict largely unscathed and lived many more years, she certainly did not remain untouched by it. During her brief stint as a miniature painter, she was often commissioned to paint the images of those who had gone to fight. Listening to the stories of these young men who had gone off to war had a significant impact on Sutcliffe, which is particularly apparent in A Song for a Dark Queen. The novel is mostly told from the perspective of an Iceni harpist, but certain chapters end with letters sent by the young aide-de-camp Agricola to his mother in Gaul, which recounts the events in the conflict and his own feelings about it. I painted children for the most part. Oh, the awfulness of trying to paint children who can never sit still for a second, even when being told stories. And even more, the awfulness of their mothers who are never satisfied and who equate blue eyes and duckling yellow hair with beauty. But as the war went on, I began to get more and more work to do at home from photographs. Husbands and sons in the uniform of one or other of the services. And then, sadly, more and more often photographs of husbands and sons who would not be coming home again. Mother dear, I've kept my promise to write, after a fashion, but I have suddenly decided I shan't send this letter. There are things in it better not written, lest the wrong eyes should read them, and things that will make you worried and sad. It's dirty too. I've carried it in my saddlebag all this while, and there's blood on it. I'll write you a nice clean letter, with no blood on it, when I have more time. Or maybe I'll wait till I get leave and can tell you the story myself. There's a good fire burning in front of the governor's pavilion. Sylvanus, another of the staff tribunes, is trying to roast a hare over it on the point of a spear. I shall drop this into the hottest part of it, and watch the papyrus crumble away. Your loving, tired, dirty and hungry son, Gnaeus Julius Agricola. Anthony Lawton is Rosemary Sutcliffe's godson and the chair of Sussex Dolphin, which looks after her works. I remember Rosemary, who was my godmother, uh, at our house in, in Warburton in Sussex. We used to go and stay, we being me and my sister and my mother, and then when my mother died, uh, just me, I got quite often go and stay, and then with my two small children. And I remember always in the mornings, you'd hear her walking down the long corridors in her one-story house with the distinctive sound of her walking stick because she was severely disabled. But she could, once she'd been got up by her carers, she could walk on her own. She would walk her way down to her study, always the same routine. She'd stand leaning on her stick at her desk, the writing desk uh, that I fortunately now have. And she would uh, look at her post. It was in the old days of snail mail. She'd answer every letter fastidiously. 
and she would read her newspaper. She always had the Daily Telegraph. And then she'd settle down to write, write all morning, uh, stop for lunch at her desk, then do revising and uh, other research work in the afternoon. And eventually she would go to her sitting room next door for the evening where she would occupy herself uh, sometimes with crochet, sometimes with uh, making collages, but uh, usually also watching television. She loved westerns. No doubt there are a whole myriad of influences in Sutcliffe's childhood that laid the seeds of how she imagined Roman Britain, but there's one figure that stood out as having the greatest impact on her of all, Rudyard Kipling. It is a testament to Sutcliffe's love of Kipling, which she described as fanatical, that one of the few non-fiction works she wrote was a monograph on his stories for children. This devotion was not only due to his talents as a writer. On the one hand, it was perhaps inspired by her uncle Harold, who looked much like Kipling and would entertain young Rosemary with bedtime stories, perhaps in some way filling the paternal void in her life created by her father George's absences. Sutcliffe also saw Kipling as a kindred spirit, given the shared difficulties they had as children. Under the heading of general knowledge, I think I would have done quite well in a TV quiz. I knew the meaning of the three white bands round a sailor's collar. I knew the proportions of an iceberg above and below water, and the name of Apollo's mother. From a lovely book about a little boy going on a voyage around the world with his toys, which I had on long loan from grown-up cousins. Very long loan, I have it still. I had accumulated quite a lot of geography. From flower fairies of the seasons, I had gathered nearly as much botany as I have now, and I seldom find myself at loss where flowers and trees are concerned. I had a smattering of child's version history from Our Island Story, in which Queen Boudicca rebelled against the Romans because they had beaten her and been rude to her daughters but I could add two and two together three times and get a different answer each time, and I could not do the one thing on which everything else depended. I could not read. Neither could Rudyard Kipling until he was nine years old, but neither my mother nor I knew that at the time, and my mother was at times near to despair. Kipling has left a difficult legacy today. Many of his writings, particularly novels such as Kim and the Jungle Books, remain acclaimed works of literature, but Kipling, who died in 1936, was a steadfast imperialist who held racist and anti-Semitic views. His poem, The White Man's Burden, is the most famous example of this, and its sentiments were even rejected by some at the time, most famously by Mark Twain in his satirical essay To the Person Sitting in the Darkness. Yet such criticisms did not temper Sutcliffe's enjoyment of reading Kipling throughout her life, and she felt children could gain much from reading his books. Kipling has so much to give to children still, of the things that do not date at all. Worthwhile values to set against those of the horror comic, a rich and evocative use of language, stories never ordinary, in which, because of that gift of his for writing about all things and people from the inside out, instead of from the outside in, it is especially easy for the reader, or read to, to perform the minor miracle of self-identification which so much helps a small growing mind to stretch itself and open out. One of Suckliffe's favourite Kipling publications was Puck of Pook's Hill, a collection of stories in which Puck, the sprite first made famous in Shakespeare's A Midsummer's Night's Dream, brings several characters from Britain's past to the Edwardian present to meet two children, Dan and Una. 
Among these characters is a 4th century Romana British centurion, Parnesius, who tells the children about his time on Hadrian's Wall, defending the province against the Picts and the Saxons, a duty made all the more difficult as Roman soldiers are stripped away by the usurper Magnus Maximus to serve in his campaigns on the continent. The three stories that make up Parnesius' arc had a significant impact on how not only the British public would come to visualise life in Roman Britain, but they also became a touchstone for scholars, with major Romano-British archaeologists such as Francis Haverfield and R.G. Collingwood referencing Kipling in their works. What made Parnesius' story so compelling to audiences at the time were the pertinent questions it raised about the fragility of empire. As Britain's own imperial status had come under increasing scrutiny, especially after the humiliating defeats suffered in the Boer War. Such questions became only more pressing in Suckley's youth, as imperial systems across Europe collapsed in the wake of World War I, and Britain began to dismantle its own empire after World War II. The parallels between Kipling's Parnesius and Suckley's Roman heroes run deep. Parnesius and Marcus's families both originally hail from Italy. Parnesius ends up stationed on Hadrian's Wall, as do the protagonists in the Silver Branch, Frontier Wall from the Capricorn Bracelet. And just as Parnesius must defend Britain from the Picts and Saxons, so too is this the case with Suckliffe's Romano Britons. Like Kipling, Suckliffe also focused on the unit commanders, or men that gain promotion to this rank, who are honest, loyal, brave and inspiring, while the officer classes, who are awarded such positions through fortune of birth, are often lazy and selfish. The template for such Roman heroes had already been laid down in Macaulay's Lays of Ancient Rome, which Kipling and Suckliffe had both read, where he outlines the principal Roman virtues of fortitude, temperance, veracity, spirit to resist oppression, respect for legitimate authority, fidelity in observing contracts, and ardent patriotism. For Suckliffe, some of these qualities were reinforced in the military milieu in which she grew up, as well as her mother's insistence that her Steele's disease should not prove an impediment to her, and that, above all, one should not cry. In fact, Suckliffe felt that she was brought up in a fashion more standard for boys than girls at the time, and this perhaps explains why none of her Roman Britain stories focus on a female character. Even when she came to tell the story of Bullica, Suckliffe had to do it through the eyes of a man. Moreover, just as Kipling believed that the modern British could trace their ancestry back to the Roman legions, so too in Suckliffe's stories do Roman soldiers often find themselves marrying local girls, and in doing so, they create a legacy that continues across British history that mingles with other incomers. In the case of the Aquilae, Norse relatives are added, and later in the novel The Shield Ring, it is suggested that the final descendant of Marcus, the Norseman Bjorn, will eventually marry the Saxon Threefa. Arguably, as with Parnesius, the key to Suckler's protagonist's popularity are that they face, in some respects, the same challenges the contemporary readers of these works would have done. A changing world with empires collapsing, the spectre of threats from abroad, and an uncertain future ahead. Yet nevertheless, the characters persevere, and with the stories weaving their way across British history, the reader can imagine they too are the descendant of Marcus Aquila or Lucius Calpurnius, and in doing so, that they might be inspired to live up to the qualities of their imagined ancestors. However, for Kipling and Suckliffe, the connection to Britain is not dictated by blood alone, but there is something also about the land that pulls certain people towards it. Parnesius rejects Maximus's offer to join him in seeking glory on the continent, while in the Silver Branch, Justin, after being in Britain for only a short time, finds himself enamoured with Carousus's dream of what the province might become and swears to defend it. In the Lantern Bearers, Aquila goes renegade as Rome withdraws its forces from the province, unable to put the empire ahead of his own love for Britain. In Outcast, Beric, despite being a Roman by birth, is desperate to find his way back to Britain when he ends up being captured and sold as a slave in Rome, and succeeds in doing so with the help of a Romano-British centurion, Justinianus. In the Capricorn Bracelet, no matter how many times a member of the Calperni family leaves the province, they always come back, with the third Calperni stating, It's odd the way we keep coming back to Britain, in our family.
Sometimes it feels as though there is an intangible spirit to Britain, or as the Romans might have said, a genius, that binds subtlest protagonists to it. But in The Eagle of the Ninth, Marcus's uncle Aquila gives a more straightforward explanation as to why a Roman may want to retire to this particular province. Most of my service years were spent here, though it was in Judea that my time fell due for parting with the eagles. What have I to do with the South? Few memories, very few. I was a young man when I first saw the white cliffs of Dubris above the transport galley's prow. Far more memories in the North. If I settled in the South, I should miss the skies. Ever notice how changeful the British skies are? I had made friends here, a few. The only woman I ever cared to Denarius for lies buried at Gleevem. I killed my first boar in Silurian territory. I have sworn the blood brotherhood with a painted tribesman up beyond where Hadrian's wall stands now. I have a dog buried at Lugavallium. I have marched the eagles end to end of Britain in worse weather than this. Those are the things apt to strike a man's root for him. Tony Keane is an adjunct associate professor at the University of Notre Dame. I must have first encountered Rosemary Sutcliffe through the television version of The Eagle of the Ninth that the BBC broadcast in 1977. But I discovered her as a writer out of desperation. I had an English teacher who was of the sort that thought that boys not only had to read, but had to read suitable works. He rejected my James Bond novels as unsuitable, and he didn't care for science fiction either. So I hunted through the school library for something that would catch my interest and be tolerated. I found The Eagle of the Ninth. I was hooked, and voraciously followed the descendants of Marcus Flavius Aquila through the Silver Branch, the Lantern Bearers, Dawnwind, through to the Northmen of the Shield Ring. And then I read other Sutcliffe's, including what for me is her masterpiece, The Mark of the Horse Lord. As I have grown into a scholar of the ancient world, my interest in Sutcliffe has been sustained through further encounters and fellow Sutcliffe enthusiasts. As I work now on screen adaptations of Roman Britain, she remains a presence. Obviously, there are the direct adaptations of the Eagle of the Ninth to be considered. But also, much of how British creators think about Roman Britain has been shaped, as my ideas were, by childhood reading of Rosemary Sutcliffe. Arguably, one of Sutcliffe's most unique traits was her ability to conjure vibrant descriptions of a natural world bursting with life, as the cycle of the seasons provides a dynamic backdrop to the adventures of her characters, from the icy winters on Hadrian's Wall to the sun-kissed summers of the Southern Downs. As a child, Sutcliffe had become very observant of the natural world. She later recalled how during her time at school when living at Chatham Dockyard, her teacher, Miss Beck, would stop the lessons and send the children to the window to sit and admire the view. Later, when the Sutcliffe family lived in North Devon, 
Nessie would force Rosemary to accompany her on two-mile walks as a way of overcoming the limitations inflicted on her by her Stills disease. As much as an ordeal as this was for Sutcliffe, she felt that the walks helped her develop a keen sense of observation when it came to nature. Later in life, she would move to Warburton in Sussex on the edge of the South Downs, an area of Britain that she loved beyond all others. It is a testament to the deep affection that she felt for the area that it was in this landscape that she had Marcus build the villa that would be inhabited by him and his family for hundreds of years. Certainly Sutcliffe would have agreed with Blake when he sat in the village of Feltham, less than two hours' walk from Warburton, as he wrote about England's green and pleasant land. This love for the South Downs began when Sutcliffe had visited her Aunt Lucy, who lived in the area, and in her memoirs she recalled one particular occasion where, having refused to eat the pudding Aunt Lucy had laid on for her, she was forced to sit on the garden step, in disgrace, only to find enjoyment in admiring the world around her. But I did not feel in disgrace, and I was in no hurry to be forgiven and taken back. I was perfectly happy where I was. I was discovering downland turf for the first time. As we grow older, we forget how near to the ground we once were. I do not mean merely because our heads were lower down than they are now, though of course that comes into it, but near in the sense of kinship. A small child is aware of the sights and smells and textures of the ground with an acute awareness that we lose in growing up. So I sat outside Aunt Lucy's gate and investigated and experienced, to my heart's content, the foot or two of world going on around me. Pink and white convolvulus smelling of almond paste rambled along the foot of my aunt's raw new fence, and the turf itself was not just grass, but a densely interwoven forest of thyme and scarlet pimpernel, creamy honey-scented clover and sankfoil, and the infinitely small and perfect eyebright with the spot of celestial yellow at its heart. All held close to the ground on stems less than an inch high, which is the result of a few hundred years of cropping by downland sheep. And I, looking down into the forest and yet at the same time feeling its tall matted overgrowth meeting above my head, watched a small metallic green beetle climbing industriously up one grass blade and down another, found a yellow-banded snail shell, caught a seven-spot ladybird that lingered on my hand for a moment before flying away. Later, for I must in fact be remembering a blend of many afternoons after that first one spent sitting outside Aunt Lucy's gate without having first been rude about her pudding, I learned to put heads of rye grass up one sleeve of my cotton frock for the sake of enduring the delicious tickling agony as they crept across my shoulders and down the other sleeve. Above all, I soaked in the feel of the downs, the warm sense of the ground itself actively holding one up, a sureness, a steadfastness, and the sense that one gets in down country of kinship with a land that has been mixed up with the life of men since it and men began. Thank you, Aunt Lucy, for your pale grey pudding. Sutcliffe also had a great love for animals. She was particularly fond of dogs, and once remarked that she found them to be better company than most humans. When Sutcliffe was a child, her family took in Don, a black retriever, who had been mistreated by the shepherd who had owned him. But when Sutcliffe's family underwent one of their numerous relocations, they were forced to send Don to live with a friend of her father's. However, Don was returned to the Sutcliffe family for the last six months of his life, and just before his return, they adopted Mike, an Airedale puppy, quickly became firm friends with the elderly Don. Sutcliffe would go on to keep dogs throughout her later years in Sussex, and at the time of her death she owned two chihuahuas, as her godson Anthony Lawton recalls. She always had 
two dogs uh, in, in later years, it was always two chihuahuas. Uh, often one at least would be fantastically yappy, especially Sebastian, who she had uh, when she died in 1992. Uh, my, my wife and my two children used to stand at the end of the long corridors in her uh, one-story house, um, terrified of these two yapping dogs, and I'd have to go and rescue them. No amount of cajoling from Rosemary would, would uh, get them to move. And before that, she used to get taken out by her her father, who I knew as Uncle George, that she lived with in, in, the, in the late 50s in, in Sussex. And he used to drive, I think it was an old Rover, and I can remember, I was amazed that he always went exactly the same speed, partly out of care for Rosemary and not jolting her around because she'd be propped in the front seat uh, with her stick keeping her upright. That was long before the days of, of um, seatbelts. And we'd drive and go out for half an hour, an hour. And as lovers of her books know, one of her talents is the detailed perception and description of landscapes. And she nurtured that day in, day out, both going out and about in the car. And also she loved to go and stand and look out on the, the lawn and the shrubbery uh, in, in her large garden that stretched out behind her study. The special relationship between humans and animals is a frequent theme throughout Suckless books. In The Eagle, Esker rescues a wolf cub who Marcus takes into his household. Marcus himself is no stranger to having dogs around and reminisces about the dog his family owned when he was a child living in the Etruscan hills, while his uncle Aquila is the owner of an old wolfhound. Cotier also expresses love for animals, lamenting how they are kept in cages and then killed for entertainment in the arena. In Frontier Wolf, Alexius bonds with his junior trumpeteer over the nursing of a kitten that the fought cat has rejected. In Outcast, Beric's ever-fateful dog Galert tries to follow him when he is cast out by the tribe, although Beric sends him back after a tearful farewell. In A Song for a Dark Queen, the younger Grickler describes his sense of loss when his horse Felix is killed in the battle against Boudicca, having found the horse to be quite ugly but having a great heart. It is also notable that Sutcliffe's characters tend to find solace with animals in moments of anguish, when recovering from his injury, Marcus is comforted by the wolf cub that Esker has bought him. When Beric contemplates fleeing Justinianus' home and discovers Canog, he immediately forms an attachment to the dog, drawn by the fellowship of outcast for outcast. Again, such relationships have more than a hint of autobiographical about them, and one can imagine how when recovering from one of her many operations, or in times of loneliness in her younger years, the unconditional love that a pet can provide was a great relief to Sutcliffe. There is one exception to the largely amicable relationship that Suckler's protagonists have with animals, and that is the hunt undertaken by the new Frontier Wolf Scouts to acquire a wolf pelt cloak. But this is not a hunt undertaken for fun, rather it is a rite of passage that sees the integration of a newcomer into the Frontier Wolf's pack, as well as the joining together of man and animal. As the previous fort commander tells Alexius, a Frontier Wolf should never kill one of their four-footed brothers, except in self-defence, or to acquire a new cloak. When Alexius kills a wolf for its pelt, he is immediately struck by how it is now his wolf, and how a unique bond has been created between him and the dead animal, and now understands why the frontier wolves adhere to such a code as to why they should only kill a wolf in certain circumstances. For reasons he cannot explain, Alexius even feels the need to make an offering to Pan, the god of the woods, after he has cut the pelt from his wolf, adding to the ritual significance of the act. 
Deborah Roberts is Professor of Classics at Haverford College. I first encountered Rosemary Sutcliffe's work as a child. She was less widely read in the U.S. than in Britain at that point, but my mother used to buy books from the catalogue put out by Blackwell's Children's Bookshop, and I read and reread almost everything Sutcliffe wrote, including the novels of Roman Britain for which she is best known. Attentive as she was to different historical settings, her distinctive idiom and certain central themes, such as loss, discovery, and the complicated nature of loyalty, joined all the periods she wrote about together, like the dolphin ring we first meet in Eagle of the Ninth and follow to post-conquest England. My childhood delight in the Eagle of the Ninth and its sequels is no doubt one of the reasons my research has turned in recent decades to the reception of the ancient world in books for children. This work includes articles on the relationship between Sutcliffe's work and Kipling's, and a book, Childhood and the Classics, written in collaboration with Sheila Murnahan. Although our focus on earlier historical fiction means that Sutcliffe's work plays a minor role in the book, we drew on her own childhood memories of reading Kipling's stories of Roman Britain and other people's childhood memories of reading her novels. These helped us tell the story not only of adults' depiction of the ancient world for imagined child readers, but also of actual children's experience of historical fiction, an experience that Sutcliffe never forgot and that informed her own writing. Her continuing connection with her child reader self may also help explain why she was the only author I ever wrote a letter to as a child and why she replied. Not only was Sutcliffe able to produce vibrant descriptions of the environment that her Romano-Britons inhabited, but the material culture of the period also plays a prominent role in her stories and often reflects certain themes within them. There is, of course, the dolphin ring itself, as well as the Capricorn bracelet, which are passed down through generations of the same family as a physical manifestation of a legacy that continues throughout Roman Britain and beyond, in much the same way the Roman occupation has left a lasting impact on Britain itself. However, while the dolphin ring survives across the ages, the Romano-British phase of the Aquili family is bookended by the creation and destruction of their farm on the South Downs, which Marcus sets off to build at the end of the Eagle and is later burned down early in the Lantern Bearers shortly after the final Roman ship has left the province. We might also see the bronze legionary eagle that Marcus sets out to retrieve as a representation of the Roman virtues laid down in Macaulay's Lays of Ancient Rome, which Marcus himself has somewhat lost following his decommission, but finds again on his journey. Furthermore, the eventual fate of the eagle is not one that Marcus could have imagined, in much the same way that his own story will come to an end in a way that he does not foresee. The artistic motifs that decorate objects in Roman Britain also gave Sutcliffe a method to explore how different cultures interact, especially in a colonial setting. One prominent example comes from a passage in The Eagle, in which Marcus and Esker discuss the benefits of Roman rule. Marcus struggles to understand how, when Rome brings security, infrastructure and justice, that there are those who could reject Roman rule, although as Esker counters, the price that people pay is often too high for this. In order to help Marcus understand, Esker compares the dagger sheath that Marcus had recently bought to an old Celtic shield that is owned by Uncle Aquila. Look at the pattern embossed here on your dagger sheath. See here is a tight curve, and here is another facing the other way to balance it, and between them is a round, stiff flower. It's beautiful, yes, but to me it is as meaningful as an unlit lamp. Look now at the shield boss. 
See the bulging curves that flow from each other as water flows from water and wind from wind, as the stars turn in the heaven and blow sand drifts in the dune. These are the curves of life, and the man who traced them had in him knowledge of things that your people have lost the key to, if they ever had it. You cannot expect the man who made this shield to live easily under the rule of the man who works the sheath of this dagger, one who had lived so long under the wings of Rome, he and his fathers before him, that he had forgotten the ways and the spirit of his own people. You are the builders of coarsed stone walls, the makers of straight roads and order justice and disciplined troops. When the time comes that we begin to understand your world, too often we lose the understanding of our own. Staying with the topic of artistry, the short story The Eagle's Egg features a Romano-British artisan named Vedrix, who is employed to install a mosaic floor in the council chamber at Eborakum. Personally, I find Vedrix one of the most interesting characters from Sutcliffe's Roman Britain stories, as he gives a nod to the long-running dispute over whether representations in Romano-British art should be considered poor workmanship in comparison to those produced on the continent, or if they are the result of intentional regional variations. If you want an example, just look at the Albra Wolf. Such debates often start on a shaky basis, given that the Romans did not conceptualise art as we do today, but rather class such work in the same category as blacksmiths and bakers. And with this in mind, Vedric's story probably provides a more realistic portrayal of a Romano British craftsman. Vedric is more a jack of all trades rather than a specialist, who is employed when the council run out of money to bring in a master mosaicist. Yet the floor Vedric lays at Eberacum is still impressive, although, as the main character Quintus observes, the leopard looks a little bit odd, which is probably due to the fact that Vedrix has had to base it on an image from a cracked pot. Vedrix is clearly a man with artistic talent, but he does not think of himself as such. Rather, he is an artisan who is working to fulfil his customer's demand, and he is faced with limitations beyond his control when he is asked to include an animal that he has never actually seen himself, and has only a damaged image from a different medium to base this off of. The story of Vedrix is a reminder that there would have been various factors that contributed to the creation of objects in the ancient world, and that the men and women behind these works had their own stories in which the surviving materials played perhaps only a small part. Ellen Swift is Professor of Roman Archaeology at the University of Kent. I think I felt that they were sort of mysterious. I think I liked things that were about the distant past rather more recent historical fiction. I think what I remember really is this this kind of sensational feeling of light in dark places, which I think she managed to convey. And I think that's maybe obviously through a later book in the trilogy called The Lantern Bearers, which obviously the title sort of seems to refer to that. And I know I just found it very intriguing that the Romans could have been in Britain um, because I'd encountered them sort of in other places. So um, being brought up as a Christian, I'd sort of encountered the Romans in the Bible, and obviously that's in a more Middle Eastern kind of context. So it was just mysterious to me how the Romans could also be uh, in Britain as well. So I think I found that very intriguing. I've got a vague memory that I liked the, the sort of material objects that are in those books as well, and that's kind of interesting, obviously, given my subsequent um, trajectory of becoming a Roman scholar of artefacts um, because I did like the little references traced through several books that is passed down the family and I, I quite liked that and obviously the eagle itself and um, so just having those sort of material props I think was was important um, it's quite interesting because I, I did reread the Sutcliffe books 
as an adult um, I came across them and this is often a mistake reading a book game as an adult a children's book because it can be a colossal disappointment and something that I found with other children's books is that the plot just moves on really fast when you read it as an adult it's really interesting to see that happening and um, so what felt to be a kind of slow and immersive experience as a child is all just over in a couple of pages as an adult um, but actually it wasn't disappointing rereading the Sutcliffe books I still liked them and I still thought they were good and so that's that's quite interesting to see that they actually stand up quite well when you read them as an adult and also even of course when you know a lot more about the Roman period It is also worth highlighting that, despite her claims of being old-fashioned, Sutcliffe could be a lot more forward-thinking than her predecessors or contemporaries. A recurring theme in Sutcliffe's works is an intense relationship that is formed between two major male characters, Marcus with Esker, Beric with Catalan and later Jason, Phaedrus with Conroy, and between the distant cousins Flavius and Justin. When she was asked if she thought these could be interpreted as homosexual relationships, she responded... I write mostly about men in a man's world, fighting men, and the homosexual relationship, or at any rate very deep friendship between men, tends very much to occur in this type of society. I imagine that the warrior-blood-brother relationship was far nearer to the homosexual than to any kind of brotherhood, though possibly the men themselves were not fully aware of this. As Sutcliffe acknowledged, sexual relationships between men in the Roman period were not uncommon, with perhaps the most well-known example, the Emperor Hadrian and his lover Antinous. Yet to portray such aspects of life in the ancient world would have been almost impossible for Sutcliffe in the earlier stages of her career, given that it was not until 1967 that homosexual acts were made legal in the UK, and even then, only for men over the age of 21. However, growing up at military bases, it is not unlikely that Sutcliffe observed moments of closeness and tenderness between men, although there could be no public affirmation that there was a romantic element to this. She once asked her father if Sir Christopher Craddock, his commanding officer whom he had idolised, was gay, to which her father responded cryptically that Craddock wasn't gay, but rather Elizabethan, like Drake or Raleigh. In the end, Sutcliffe reflected, it didn't really matter if Craddock was or wasn't. He inspired men like her father, and that's what mattered. Another way in which Sutcliffe's portrayal of Roman Britain was unusual, particularly for the time, is the recurrent theme of disability in her works. In The Eagle, Marcus is expelled from the army due to the leg injury he has suffered and undergoes painful treatment to regain some of his mobility. In The Silver Branch, Justin suffers from a stutter. The main character in the short story, A Circlet of Oak Leaves, Arrakos, suffers from heart palpitations and so is refused entry into the army. The aforementioned Vedrix has a lame leg, and in Mark of the Horse Lord, there is the blind Medea. Not all such issues are physical either, for Aquila and the Lantern Bearers must learn to cope with the mental scars his experiences have left him with, and which make it a struggle for him to connect with his wife and child. Such issues have often been omitted from fictional portrayals of the Roman world, with many characters in such stories presented in their prime, or reaching old age in relatively good health. Now, it is not necessarily the case that Sutcliffe's desire to include such things was driven by a desire for accuracy, as clearly her own experiences with Steele's disease were a major influence in how she constructed the challenges her characters had to overcome. Yet, nevertheless, it speaks of how when people from discrepant backgrounds engage with the past, it can bring us somewhat closer to the reality, 
For if one had travelled throughout Roman Britain, undoubtedly you would have seen many people suffering permanent ailments that they had been born with or gained through labours or in battle, as well as mental struggles. It is difficult to know how great of an impairment such things would have been to people in the ancient world, as this would have undoubtedly depended on other aspects such as class, gender and location. But Suckler's works remind us that in at least some cases, people would not only have coped with such difficulties, but would have found ways to thrive. Unfortunately, despite her own successes, Suckler found that her own contemporaries often needed reminding that disability did not define someone, as her godson, Anthony Lawton, recalls. I remember I had the great good fortune to go with Romy, as I knew her, to Buckingham Palace when she got her OBE, I think in about 1972. And in those days, uh, perhaps still, I don't know, you couldn't get in the front and up the huge glorious stairs uh, uh, if you were severely disabled, like she was in a wheelchair. And I remember being taken round right to the back. We went to some back entrance and I wheeled her through these long corridors and we went to look at the magnificent entrance where everybody else comes up and we were stood at the top and I was with her and she was looking down and she always loved a good military man with the uh, household cavalry and one of the equerries, an admiral or some such, came over and in classic does she take sugar fashion leant over to me and said, is she all right? And Romy turned round, I knew better than to say anything to her, Romy turned round and looked at him and said, don't worry, my father was in the Navy too. And the Admiral had no idea whether he'd been patronised, criticised, put down, but he looked distinctly uncomfortable. She was always like that in that she would, she would gently point out that she had a brain and a mind of her own, uh, even though she was in a wheelchair, which sadly far too many people in wheelchairs experience that people uh, make all sorts of assumptions just because they're uh, immobilised or at least struggling in a wheelchair. And from an early age, I used to go out with her and push her. I, I can picture pushing her into the bushes in the uh, in the gardens in Chichester, near, in Sussex, near where she lived. Uh, she used to come over to stay with us, uh, perhaps on her birthday, December the 14th, or always over Christmas. And she'd stay in our sitting room and sleep on the sofa because uh, we didn't have a room. And, and anyway, that was high enough for her easily to get to sleep. And uh, we would, she'd stay several days and we'd celebrate Christmas uh, together. She would perhaps bring a crib that she'd made from, uh, she was very, very deft with her hands, even though they were severely uh, deformed from Stills disease. Uh, she'd started out as a painter, in fact, as a miniaturist even, having gone to art college, uh, and eventually changed to books because she said she wanted to work on a bigger canvas. I was really fortunate uh, that I grew up with her central to my life, Kate Gilliver is a reader in ancient history at Cardiff University. I've been fascinated by the Roman army from a very early age, hooked by growing up in Dernavaria, the Roman town of Dorchester in Dorset, and seeing the skeletons of Jura Triges, probably killed by the Romans 
during the Claudian invasion, and also by reading Rosemary Sutcliffe's Eagle of the Ninth. I can't remember how old I was when I was given the book, still at primary school I think, but it was a present from my parents who'd already observed my passion for anything Roman, and I devoured it. Given my developing interests, even at that age, it probably wasn't surprising that I was rather more interested in the first part of the book, when Marcus is serving as a centurion commanding an auxiliary unit, than his adventures north of the border. But I was also struck by the portrayal of provincial life and the lives of tribes outside of the Roman Empire. It wasn't until much later that I discovered that the whole story was based on an event which probably never happened. When Sutcliffe was writing, many still believed that the Ninth had been destroyed in Caledonia, but by the time I did my A-level Latin, evidence strongly indicated that the Legion had left Britain in the second century and been wiped out elsewhere, probably in the East. This changing understanding of the past and discovery of new evidence that meant history changed was something that the Eagle of the Ninth helped me to discover. And for me, it's always been one of the most exciting things about being an ancient historian and an archaeologist. I don't think I ever saw the 70s children's adaptation of the book, but I've actually just ordered it on DVD. But two films came out about a decade ago drawing on Sutcliffe's novel, The Eagle and Centurion. The Eagle is a reasonably true retelling of the novel, with a rather nice depiction of a testudo during the action in which Marcus is badly injured. Centurion merely depicts the immediate aftermath of the destruction of a legion in Caledonia and the escape from the carnage of the said Centurion. The Eagle is not a bad movie, but Centurion has both better scenery and Michael Fassbender, so the film very loosely inspired by the book is the one I'd prefer to the closer retelling. I have a copy of The Eagle of the Ninth in my office at the university, uh, though sadly not the original one I treasured in the 70s, which I think got lost in house moves. It's there as a reminder that we shouldn't be too wedded to our interpretations of the past, and to be open to new evidence, reinterpreting old evidence, and thinking about other possibilities. But mainly, it's there as a reminder of what inspired me to study Roman history. Sutcliffe also took what was, for the time, an unusual approach to non-European characters in some of her works. Most notably, in The Eagle of the Ninth, the legate Claudius Hieronymanius, who is a former comrade-in-arms of Marcus's uncle Aquila, and who gives Marcus the order to try and locate the missing eagle, is an Egyptian. With his restrained manner and long friendship with Aquila, Claudius is presented in a positive light, which is enhanced in comparison with his haughty subordinate, Placidius. Claudius' good nature is confirmed when, upon Marcus and Esca's return to Silchester, he is there to warmly greet them, and Marcus later discovers Claudius has asked the Senate to grant Marcus the land and money that are given to a centurion upon retirement, as well as citizenship for Esca. To characterise one of the highest-ranking Roman officials in Britain as Egyptian is quite unusual in the history of the reception of Roman Britain, as people of Egyptian, and often Persian origin, have usually been depicted as antagonists, and it is telling that every adaption of The Eagle of the Ninth has cast a white actor in the role of Claudius. The inclusion of the character in the original novel should not be disregarded as just tokenism either, as it was based on a real figure of the same name, who is recorded in an inscription as having restored the temple of the Egyptian deity Serapis at York, 
and so provided a more accurate representation of the cosmopolitan nature of Roman Britain than we see in most other depictions. The Silver Branch also features a character of Egyptian origin, the half-British perfume seller Serapeon, but this character is a far cry from the noble Claudius of the Eagle. Serapeon is described as sly and has pointed fingers like a lizard, and at one point is just referred to as the creature. When Electus becomes emperor, it is revealed that it was Serapeon who had provided the poison to kill the captured Saxon who might have informed Carousius of Electus's plot. At the same time, the personal quarters of Electus are described as bearing a very different aspect to that of a usual commander's, with eastern rugs, embroideries and perfumes that make it seem more like, as it says in the novel, a suit of chambers of a queen. While they conduct their conversation, Serapeon sits at the foot of Electus like a pet. The decadence and duplicity of Electus and his half-Egyptian lackey contains more than a hint of Orientalism, which is clearly designed to set them as opposites of the rough yet honourable Carousius and the loyal soldiers Justin and Flavius. This portrayal of Serapeon is much more akin to the other negative stereotypes that have often appeared in fictional portrayals of Roman Britain. But why did Sutcliffe go down this route after her positive depiction of Claudius? It is perhaps not a coincidence between the publication of The Eagle of the Ninth and The Silver Branch. Britain's international standing was severely damaged by the Suez Crisis, an attempt by Britain and France to manipulate a conflict between Egypt and Israel in order to assert their control over the Suez Canal, only then to withdraw in embarrassment under pressure from the US, the UN and Russia. The character traits of Serapeon echoed in the British media coverage of the crisis, with newsreels portraying the Egyptians as duplicitous, cowardly and engaging in looting and sabotage. As part of this campaign to justify the actions of the British, the Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, referred to the new nationalistic leader of Egypt, Nasser, as a Middle Eastern Hitler who had to be stopped rather than appeased. Whether Sutcliffe paid much attention to the events of Suez is unclear, but it seems overly coincidental that an underhanded half-Egyptian and an evil usurper who enjoys decorating his quarters in an Eastern style appeared in Sutcliffe's first novel in the wake of the crisis. It is perhaps also unsurprising that following the World Wars, the Germanic peoples, especially the Saxons, are also not often portrayed positively in Sutcliffe's novels, with their arrival equated to an oncoming darkness in which the Romano-British must keep some spark of civilization alight. In the Silver Branch, Carousius uses the lighthouses of Richborough, Dover and Lim as an analogy when explaining to Justin how Britain must hold a line against the darkness. Subsequently, in the Lantern Bearers, Aquila lights the beacon at Richborough just after the final Roman ship leaves the shore. Later, in the novel The Dawnwind, with the title suggesting that the sun is rising again, St Augustine arrives on his Christian mission and with him comes a reconnection to Rome. Interestingly, despite the rapid integration of Roman and Britain, including Marcus being betrothed to the Iceni Cotia just decades after the Boudicca Revolt, and the subsequent Norse relatives, it takes centuries before a Saxon joins the family, suggesting that Roman, Celtic and Norse can integrate more easily with each other than the Germanic Saxons. In The Lantern Bearers, when Aquila eventually finds his kidnapped sister and discovers she has been married to a Saxon and had a son by him, there can be no reintegration of the family. In the end, they remain divided between the Saxon and Romano-British halves of the former province. As with the shifting depictions of Egyptian characters in the wake of Suez, the extent to which Sutcliffe was cognizant of how the Germanic peoples were being presented in a more negative light than other groups in her novels is unclear. 
We also need to bear in mind that it was only until relatively recently that the post-Roman period across Europe has been characterised quite literally as the Dark Ages, which saw the collapse of classical, in inverted commas, civilization. And so in some respects, Sutcliffe was only following established trends at the time. Donald Gordon is the former secretary of the Tremontium Trust. The story concerns James Carroll, a local Melrose solicitor who did a sensational excavation of this huge 1st and 2nd century uh, Roman fort in 1905 to 1910, publishing his magisterial uh, report in 1911. The title is A Roman Frontier Post and Its People, the Fort of Newstead in the parish of Melrose, which is in fact an iambic pentameter. There was no local follow-up for many years. Uh, 1928 there was an exaggerated altar set up on, on the site, but nothing, nothing material happened till 89 and 90, uh, when the local authority, after two public inquiries, put a road through the South Annex. However, there was revived interest in the work of Carroll, and out of it came the Tremontium Trust and the Tremontium Museum, all volunteer-driven um, with help uh, from uh, museums in Edinburgh, Glasgow and indeed Vindolanda. So we began all sorts of activities, weekly walks to the site, work with schools, six lectures a year, um, an annual outing to a Roman site, an annual 20-page journal, the Trimontium Trumpet. Then what about a, a friends group? Should we not have a friends group, um, but of a distinctive type? I know, we'll have a revived 20th Legion, a detachment of the 20th Legion, which had served at Trimontium. Could we invite a big name to join us? And that's when, greatly daring, we wrote to Rosemary Sutcliffe um, down in Arundel in Sussex, and good sport that she was, she accepted. Um, but this time we asked her if she would be honorary centurion of, guess what, the Ninth Legion. We exchanged amicable correspondence till her death in 92. And um, she told us that she had a book of Carol, and we knew that because she um, used to she used to use some of Carol's famous finds as part of the stories. In Sword at Sunset, there's the, the nine slaughtered horses um, in one of the pits, famous pits at Tremontium, and below them the body of a girl. On one of our Tremontium walks. We were always talking about bits and pieces, and one of the ladies on one occasion said to me that I have the Sutcliffe letters. And she said, go back and look at the signature. So I did. And Rosemary Sutcliffe was the, certainly the name, and the Sutcliffe uh, ended in a great swirl and curve. And when you follow them then, looking back to the rosemary, and it was a dolphin. <laughs>
It ended in a dump. You can't get more Roman than that. Sutcliffe had a strong fascination with how religions and beliefs evolved and was heavily influenced by the anthropologist Sir James George Fraser's multi-volume opus, The Golden Bow, A Study in Magic and Religion. This is reflected in the myriad of deities, cults and rituals that appear throughout her stories, and arguably one of the most vivid passages in The Eagle of the Ninth relates to the Feast of the New Spears, which marks the ritual passage from childhood to adulthood among the boys of the northern tribes. In regards to her own beliefs, although Sutcliffe identified as Church of England on her documentation, she never considered herself to be of any particular religion, and felt that the polytheistic approach of the Romans was much more appealing. I can't take the all-pervasiveness of religion which has a stranglehold on life. The more level-headed viewpoint of the Romans is nearer to our own way of looking at things. If I could do a time flip and land it back in Roman Britain, I would take a deep breath, take perhaps a fortnight to get used to things, then be all right. Interestingly, one way in which Sutcliffe departed notably from Kipling's portrayal of the ancient world was her depictions of Christians. In some of Kipling's stories, such as those about Parnesius and the church that was at Antioch, Christians, particularly evangelical Christians, make themselves a nuisance and impede the Roman heroes in their efforts. In contrast, Sutcliffe's Roman Christians often befriend and aid the protagonists. In The Silver Branch, the Christian Antonius defends an old lady who is abused by Electus's guards before joining Flavius and Justin as part of the resistance, while in Frontier Wolf, the Christian Lucius enjoys reading Virgil without taking any issue with its overtly pagan narrative and dies bravely defending the retreating Roman forces. By the time of the Lantern Bearers, the Aquila family have converted to Christianity and Aquila is aided several times by the monk Ninias. That being said, like Kipling, Sutcliffe had a particular aversion to evangelicals, which stemmed in part from her visits to a terrifying Swedish masseuse when she was a child. The masseuse had ordered Sutcliffe to eat a mixture of banana and sugar as a medicine for her Stills disease. But when Sutcliffe wasn't able to do so, as she hated bananas, the masseuse told Sutcliffe and her mother that they would suffer the wrath of God for failing to listen to her. It is possible that Sutcliffe had this masseuse in mind when she has Ninias describe how a fellow monk took it upon himself to deliver the word of God to the Saxons, despite being advised against it, and ended up having his head removed from his shoulders for his efforts. Another religious group that often appears in Sutcliffe's works, and which featured in those of Kipling, are the Mithraic Initiates. The Mysteries of Mithras was an all-male cult that spread across the Roman West in the 1st to 4th centuries, and was particularly popular amongst the soldiers of the northern frontiers. To join the cult, you had to undergo secretive intensive initiation ceremonies held in small dark temples to Mithras. Yet despite the many characters who are members of the cult, including Marcus, Gern, Alexius, Titus Justinius and Lucius Calpurnius II, what being a member involves in Sutcliffe's works is never entirely explained, as there are no scenes set in Mithraea, nor do any characters have a conversation about it. Rather, the reader must piece together comments and thoughts of the various characters to gain some insight. While playing a board game with his uncle, Marcus, a member of the Mithraic Raven Grade, has a flashback to his initiation, remembering the darkness of the cave, the sudden glory of the candles that sank and turned blue and sprang up again, the reborn light of Mithras in the dark of the year. Later, Marcus builds an altar to Mithras when he and Esker cross the frontier and recognises Gurn as a fellow raven by the faded scar on his head, although he does not initially know for sure that this is a remnant of Gurn's former life as a Roman soldier, for, as Marcus says, Mithras sometimes found followers in unexpected places. In the Capricorn bracelet, Lucius Calpurnius II reflects on how the loneliness of the Night Watch, particularly in bad weather, 
reminds him of a Mithraic initiation, which he describes as some borderland between this world and another, although precisely what this means is left unclear. Alexius, like his ancestor Marcus, is a Mithraic raven, and attends the Mithraeum behind the bathhouse at Castellum. When the quartermaster Kaizo dies in the retreat from Castellum, Alexius offers a prayer to Mithras as the quartermaster is buried, which alludes to traditional ideas that the cult shared similarities with Christianity, although we don't actually have any evidence of Mithraic burials. Moreover, the prayer is a nod to Kipling, who included the poem A Song to Mithras in Puckapook's Hill. Lord of light, lord of ages, slayer of the bull, here we lay all that can die of Kaiso Quintilius of the Third Order of Frontier Wolves, thy son. Receive back into thy strong hands all of him that cannot die. The sun rises, the sun sets, and always the sun rises again. While the protagonists of Suckless novels are frequently Mithraic initiates, who are sometimes aided by Christians, one group that often appears in the role of antagonists are the local druids. In The Eagle of the Ninth, the attack on the fort under Marcus's command is led by a druid who has been stirring up trouble. In Frontierwolf, a similar situation arises when the priest Morvid, having lost face to Castellum's previous commander, urges Canorix's tribe towards conflict. In Song for a Dark Queen, Cadwan suspects the priest Murdin of encouraging Boudicca to allow the Catulavani to fight the Romans alone in the hope they will wipe each other out. In Outcast, a druid named Murdin tells Conroy to abandon Beric as a baby and warns that bringing the boy into the tribe will bring evil down upon them. Although long dead by the time Beric is a teenager, the predictions of Murdin are still remembered and are what lead to Beric being banished. Sutcliffe was not alone in her negative presentation of the druids either, as other novels set in Roman Britain, including George Shipway's Imperial Governor and Alan Ferguson's Roman Go Home, portray them as brutal religious extremists. What the druids of Iron Age Britain were actually like is unclear, as they left no textual records, and written descriptions of them come down to us from Roman authors. They are described as conducting human sacrifices, but then again one need only look at the suspicions people had of the early Christians to see that such accounts could be greatly exaggerated. More important was that the Druids provided a rallying point for anti-Roman sentiment, and this would appear to have been the primary reason for their destruction. Given her fondness for the supposed religious freedom in the ancient world, it is surprising that Sutcliffe portrayed the Druids in such a fashion. Maybe she accepted the Roman accounts of how the Druids were far too extreme to be allowed to continue, while, as I have also touched upon, she was also very sceptical when it came to religious groups that have too much power in society. Moreover, as with other things we've touched on so far, we can perhaps detect the influence of contemporary news stories, especially as it was not unusual for groups that challenged British imperial power to be painted in a similar light to the Druids in the Roman texts. One such example might be the Mau Mau, who were a militant group opposed to British rule in Kenya in the 1950s. The killings undertaken by the Mau Mau, although small in number, created a sense of fear among the white settlers, and stories about them were sensationalised in the media, which portrayed them as engaging in witchcraft and cannibalism. Any brutality on the part of the Mau Mau, however, was more than equaled by the atrocities undertaken by the British government and their local allies, which saw many tortured and killed. Likewise, a century before in British India, bandits known as the Thuggy were cast in a similar role, including an adaption of the Kipling poem Gunga Din, and, most famously, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Finally, it is worth mentioning that while she did not consider herself to be particularly religious, one idea that Sutcliffe did embrace was reincarnation, and she alluded in various interviews to perhaps having lived a previous life as a Roman soldier in Britain, which is why it felt so natural to her to write the stories that she did. 
Now, regardless of whether this was true or not, I think it adds another dimension to the spirit of her works, perhaps quite literally, in a sense that they are imbued with something intangible, something that can't quite be explained, and something that is linked to the wider rhythms of life. It is difficult to gauge how popular Sutcliffe is today, for, much like Sutcliffe herself lamented regarding the readership of Kipling, the popularity of an author inevitably ebbs and flows. This is partly because their stories, even if works of historical fiction, often reflect their own life and times. This was true of Kipling, and hopefully this documentary has highlighted how it was also the case, at least in certain regards, for Sutcliffe. Subsequently, to later audiences, some aspects of their stories can become dated, and, in some cases, unacceptable. Yet, at least in my mind, this is where the fascination lies. For Sutcliffe's works, much like those of her hero Kipling, reflect modern Britain's ever-changing relationship with its Roman past. There will never be a point where we know all there is to know about Roman Britain, and 50 years from now, people will look back at the media and scholarship produced today and say, what were they thinking? Just as Sutcliffe's characters are links in a chain across British history, so too do we form a chain with Sutcliffe and Kipling as we create our own image of Roman Britain and undoubtedly their legacies continue to shape how we and later generations do so, even if indirectly. You could say that in the same way that Sutcliffe's characters are not always aware of the legacy of the dolphin ring that they carry, so too will many of us not realise that as we attempt to reconstruct the past, we are carrying with us an image of Sutcliffe's Roman Britain. Now, none of this is to say, however, that Sutcliffe's works should be consigned to history themselves. Quite the contrary. Here we have life in Roman Britain, and particularly the Roman army, imagined by a severely disabled woman. This certainly would not have sounded a winning formula to many in post-war Britain, and to be honest, I don't doubt there are many today who would argue that such a person could not provide a decent account of the subject matter. Yet not only did Sutcliffe do so, she created a Roman Britain that was perhaps closer to the reality than many would have thought at the time one that contained people with different ethnicities, sexualities, and disabilities. In some ways, how we imagine Roman Britain today is still playing catch-up to this, particularly in regards to disabilities. Arguably, however, it is her descriptions of nature that remain the most standout and relevant aspects of her works. For Sutcliffe understood that people, and the societies in which they live, all reside within a natural world that they must engage with, and, above all respect, for, while people live and die, and empires rise and fall, the natural world continues around us. In searching for a quote to end this documentary on, I felt that this passage from The Silver Branch, which gives the thoughts of Justin the night before he goes into battle, epitomised this central theme in Sutcliffe's works. Figures came and went like shadows between him and the fires. Low voices exchanged a password. The horses stamped and shifted from time to time, but the night itself was very still behind the sounds of the camp. A wonderful night, up here above the mist, the bracken of the hillside frozen into silver stillness, below the dark fleece of the thorn scrub that covered the higher slopes on either side, the moon still low in a glimmering sky that seemed brushed over with a kind of mothwing dust of gold. Somewhere, far down the widening valley, a vixen called to her mate, and somehow the sound left the silence empty. Justin thought... If we are killed tomorrow, the vixen will still call across the valley to her mate. Maybe she has cubs somewhere among the root tangle of the woods. Life, it goes on. And the thought was somehow comforting.
Some people do say that writers have only one plot, and I think really I've only got one plot. A boy growing up and finding himself, and finding his soul in the process, and achieving what he sets out to achieve, or not achieving it, and finding his own soul in the process of not achieving it, and becoming part of society. I get a lot of letters, generally saying, how did you come to be a writer? How long does it take you? How can I become one? Sometimes they inquire anxiously about particular characters. Did so-and-so find a nice wife? And this kind of thing. Which I find rather touching because one feels they have become really involved and the people are real to them. One fan letter I had once, years and years ago, said, broadly speaking, Dear Miss Sutcliffe, I enjoy your books very much and I hope that when you are dead you go on writing books and I can go on reading them. But my mother used to buy books from the catalogue put out by Blackwell's Children's Bookshop and I read and reread almost everything Sutcliffe wrote. But actually it wasn't disappointing rereading the Sutcliffe books. I still liked them and I still thought they were good. Uh, so that's quite interesting to see that they actually stand up quite well. Much of how British creators think about Roman Britain has been shaped, as my ideas were, by childhood reading of Rosemary Sutcliffe. Sutcliffe's role in creating Roman Britain was certainly as important as that of Sorrel. Her books, just like Sorrel's painting, have shape and keep shaping the way archaeologists imagine the past. I have a copy of The Eagle of the Ninth in my office at the university. It's there as a reminder that we shouldn't be too wedded to our interpretations of the past. But mainly, it's there as a reminder of what inspired me to study Roman history. When you follow them there, looking back to the rosemary, and it was a dolphin. It ended in a dolphin. You can't get more Roman than that. And we drive and go out for half an hour, an hour, and as lovers of her books know, one of her talents is the detailed perception and description of landscapes and she nurtured that day in, day out. I was really fortunate uh, that I grew up with her central to my life. Thanks for listening to this documentary. If you want to find out more about Rosemary Sutcliffe, you can visit rosemarysutcliffe.net. Thanks go to Giacomo Savani, Deborah Roberts, Ellen Swift, Kate Gilliver, Tony Keane and Donald Gordon for their contributions, and special thanks to Anthony Lawton for providing memories of his godmother. Excerpts from Sutcliffe's memoirs and her interview with Emma Fisher that was published in Pipe Pipers, Interviews with the Influential Creators of Children's Literature, edited by Justin Wintle, were read by Alex Davis. Agricola was voiced by Lee Grana, Uncle Aquila by Andy Bates, Esker by Phil Hughes, and Alexius by Jay Ingate. The music featured in this production includes Peace of Mind, Winds of the Rainforest, Garden Music, Easy Lemon, White Lotus, Sad Trio, Relaxing Piano Music, and Music for Manatees, all by Kevin MacLeod, along with Time to Run, Finale, by Dexter Brisson. <laughs>